Hello. Back in 2007, Irish scientists wrote a report about Ireland's rapidly changing climate. They said that by 2020, temperature rises of up to 1.5 degrees would spark warmer, drier summers and southeastern parts of Ireland would experience drought. There'd be more floods in the northwest, storms would intensify across the country and rainfall would increase in the west. Although some dismissed their predictions at the time, the scientists were right. And to do this, they turned to climate modelling. So what is this and how do they do it? And when it comes to the climate emergency and global heating, what can data tell us from the past about what lies ahead? Well, joining me are Paul Dunlop, glaciologist uh, from Ulster University, Connor Sweeney of the School of Mathematics and Statistics in UCD and Connor Murphy from the Department of Geography at Maynooth University. You're all very welcome. Um, Connor Sweeney, uh, I suppose to start with, you know, we have to not get lost in the fog of language around climate. And I wonder if you could talk to me a bit about the difference between climate and weather. Uh, sure, Ella. That's, that's a really good question because a lot of people are interested in that. Um, we're all very familiar and very happy to talk about the weather a lot of the time. And we're familiar with the weather forecasts that we'd see on TV or hear on the radio. And they're a start into climate. But with weather, we're really talking about what's going to happen at a certain place at a certain time. So if I want to know if I can have a barbecue this weekend, I want to know if it's going to rain in my back garden or not. Whereas climate models are very different. With a climate model, we're not trying to predict what happens at a certain date. We're trying to predict how all the different types of weathers that may happen could change. So in Ireland, we have a fairly temperate climate. Uh, it never gets too hot, it never gets too cold. And that's the kind of information a climate model would tell us. Uh, if things are going to change in the future, a climate model will tell us that all those different types of weather might get a little bit warmer. But it's still not telling us what will happen on any particular day. And so when you're talking about climate modelling, are you using the data that we use for weather forecasting and plugging it in over long periods of time to, to get a kind of bigger meta picture, if you like? We start off with models that are very like uh, weather forecast models, but the climate models are a lot more complex. Uh, for example, the ocean is far more important in a climate model than it would be in weather forecasting. And so are all the bits of ice around the world and the glaciers and the Arctic. So the climate model needs a lot more data than a weather model would need. As well as that, a climate model may start with uh, all of the observations about the world as it is now, although actually we usually started before any greenhouse gases in what we call the pre-industrial period. So back in around in the late 1700s. But once we've started it off, the laws of physics take over. So we don't tell it what's happening on the Earth anymore. We tell it how much sunlight's coming in. We tell it how the land use may change as, as civilizations grow. But we don't actually tell it anymore about the weather. It just can, it, it calculates the weather from that point on all by itself. And after you did your PhD, Connor Sweeney, you were hired to be part of the first climate modelling group in Ireland. Um, you know, when you when we think about what exactly you, you lot do, I mean, are you talking about a supercomputer that you use in order to work out what, what lies ahead? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what we're talking about. So it was very exciting. Uh, there hadn't been climate modelling run by a group in Ireland before that stage. There's quite a lot of it run now, uh, particularly in ICHEC. But back then, we were kind of starting off with a new basis. Luckily, Ireland is a member of the European Centre of Medium Range Weather Forecasting, or the ECMWF. And they have fantastic supercomputers. They always have supercomputers that are in the top 50 or even top 20 in the world. And because Ireland pays to be a member of that, it's a European group, then we have 
get access to this brilliant supercompute power. And at the time, very few people in Ireland were using the supercomputer. So we were able to run these really great climate models on the ECMWF supercomputer ourselves. And is it the case, Conor Murphy, that uh, climate modelling is subjective, that there's no objective way of doing it, that each model is different and it's dependent on what you put in and dependent on the scientists and the researchers? Yeah, I, I, would, I would very strongly argue that, that climate models are objective. I mean, they're, they're based on, on the laws of physics and our, our understanding of how the climate system works uh, to the best of our scientific knowledge at the time. And they are you know, one of the only, the only tools we have, essentially, for, for trying to project multiple decades into the future, and it capitalizes on that, that knowledge. But it becomes trickier, uh, even when you think about weather forecasting, as, as Connor Sweeney was saying, it's more about the, the weather over the next couple of days and, and getting a handle on local conditions is important. But moving out to multiple decades into the future, what we call boundary conditions, like how much greenhouse gas emissions take place and the concentrations of them in the atmosphere are really important for determining what the climate is uh, likely to be in the 2050s or 2080s. And some of those things are impossible to know from here. And that's why some, we use scenarios or possibilities to say if we continue as usual, this is what greenhouse gas concentrations will be. If we get our act together and reduce greenhouse gas emissions, uh, the concentration in the atmosphere of those gases may be considerably less. So it's a, it's a challenge to, to think about trying to, to model climate out to, to multiple decades into the future. And there are decisions that have to be taken in terms of, you know, computing resources are finite, which models do we use, which greenhouse gas emission scenarios are more likely or not, can we even attach probabilities? So there are some, some questions that introduce complexities or uncertainties into, into what the future can look like. But fundamentally, they're based on, on laws of physics. Uh, uh, Paul, I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about the role of satellites in all of this. You know, I presume satellites in space have completely changed how scientists understand climate. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I mean satellites were sort of first really launched for Earth observation in the 1970s. Um, and that was done by NASA. They had a series of satellites called Landsat, the Landsat system. And they were sort of quite successful. And we could see the Earth at resolutions that we'd never seen before. You could see the whole Earth and you could sort of see, monitor changes through time. And that, that has just expanded massively over the last few decades. Now, so most, a lot of nations now have their own satellite observation system. So Europe has its own uh, series of satellites called the Sentinels. Um, you've got, and there has their own satellites. They're all doing different things. So some are measuring different things like land some are looking at the atmosphere some are looking specifically at ice only so we've got cryosat and ice sat those are satellites that have got lasers and radar systems on board and they're measuring the thickness of, of ice so all that information is extremely important for climate modelers because the other guys were talking about boundary conditions. So they change as we go forward in time. And if we've got it like a long-term monitoring program with these satellites in, you can update the boundary conditions, for example, so you can actually quantify the amount of ice um, that's in the Arctic Circle, for example, and you can plug that into a model and that could potentially increase the accuracy of the forward forecasting of the model. And, and, you know, I'm trying to think, you know, if, if there's such a sort of global perspective here, why bother having, we'll take Ireland, like why bother having Irish specific climate modelling? Uh, I mean, 
I think it's really important to try and understand what's happening regionally. Um, a lot of the climate models in the past uh, had sort of what we would say the resolution was, resolution was quite coarse, so they couldn't sort of maybe predict actually what was happening at a, at a small scale. And people are interested in what's happening locally. You know, for example, if you're a farmer and the climate system's changing, the guys are saying it might, like, this is not the weather. If Ireland's climate was predicted to be more warm and more humid, that might have a problem for potatoes, for example. So you might, you know, at a regional scale, we need to know what's happening so we can plan for the future and we can grow the right things. We can locate homes and safe areas so they don't flood, uh, no, things like that. So I think regional scale models are really a critical thing to do. And Connor Sweeney, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because I, I do remember a couple of years ago meeting a, a, a farmer from Donegal, a potato farmer, and he was saying, look, can somebody please just tell me about climate change in my area? And it seemed, I don't know if this is correct or not, but it seemed to be the case that the climate modelling just couldn't zone in enough in, in the regions in Ireland. And I wonder, is that something that's changed? It's certainly something that's getting a lot better as we understand more about the physical laws that govern the climate model. Uh, and also, uh, as Paul said, um, as we get more data, and that's really important, satellites are giving us way more data. Uh, that means the models themselves can get better, the, the uncertainties, or, you know, we get better at the things we weren't so good at in the older models. And also, supercomputers are getting more and more powerful all the time, which means we can run at a higher resolution, or even, as Connor Murphy suggested, we can look at probabilities by running lots and lots of models together. And by taking all of that and comparing it to what we do know, we're getting better at having regional uh, ideas of how climate change will impact different sectors. So going into the future, that is what people should expect? Uh, I, I think it's, it'll continue going that way all the time. It'll, we'll get higher and higher resolutions. We'll be able to run more and more models and we'll learn more about the physics that happen behind the climate. Having said that, there's still a lot to learn, uh, particularly in the ocean. Uh, the ocean is like a great unexplored mass. We can see the land, we can detect the land from satellites, but figuring out what's happening deep in the ocean is more difficult. But it's critically important for the longer time changes we're interested in for climate modelling. And Conor Murphy, you know, my head is swilling with the amount of data that then is, is out there. And I wonder, do countries, are they open in sharing all this data? I mean, is all this data available to everyone involved in climate modelling? Yeah, we're certainly getting better at it, and you're definitely right. There's huge amounts of data, and I think that the increased availability of data from satellites to to better quality uh, on the ground measurements to integrating that in, into our computer models is really uh, uh, culminated in what you might call a golden age for for climatology. We are in the last twenty or thirty years making advances at a, a really rapid scale in understanding what's happening with our climate system, our ability to be able to, to model it into the future. And key to that success has been sharing data uh, from ESA with satellite data, uh, from uh, work like uh, Copernicus led through the European Centre for Medium-Range Weather Forecasts, and met agencies uh, and offices in different countries sharing their information, making it available to researchers and, and international institutions has been a game changer in terms of how we're able to make uh, progress in our science. Paul? I, I mean, I've got something that uh, that sort of feeds into this about open do data and access to data. Is, um, I mean, everyone's using Google Earth. You can log on and you can see where you're going. But um, I was at a conference uh, a few years ago in San Francisco at American Geophysical Union. It's called it's the biggest air science conference. And um, they, have, they have also got a thing called Google Earth Engine. 
So while Google Earth shows you your one or two satellite images, Google Earth Engine is an actual data processing system that's free to anyone to use. And they have collated every single satellite system, every satellite image that NASA has collected since 1970s. And you can analyze the change over the last sort of 40 odd years. And uh, one of the talks I was at, they, for the first time ever, they quantified the amount of fresh water on the planet for the first time ever. They also quantified, the, the, for the first time ever, the amount of uh, forestry. So we still are learning a lot about the Earth, and those things are important to feed into these climate models. So, it's, I mean, from a sort of geopolitical perspective, Conor Sweeney, you know, are, are there any countries that don't share their data? No, not many. I think it's fantastic. Uh, and as I, as I try and tell my students, um, the World Meteorological Organization, uh, the idea to share data, I think, was one of the first uh, internationally agreed protocols that, that, that mankind got to. Even in times of war and peace, people still managed to continue swapping data throughout it all. And that was a great achievement. At the time, it was because if a storm came along, it would sink everybody's ships. So they decided, well, let's just share all the data. So we're, we're kind of levelling the pitch as far as weather is concerned. But that's continued right through. So today, almost every single nation uh, contributes data to the WMO because every single nation wants and needs to know the effect of weather and climate. A few years ago, uh, there was an awful lot of debate around the accuracy of climate modelling uh, and suggestions that it's been exaggerated. Uh, but scientific research dismissed that. There was a paper in 2013 in Nature that said that scientists accurately uh, predicted the warming experience in the past decade to within a few hundredths of a degree. And I just wonder, Conor Sweeney, you know, what is it about the modelling situation that scientists are so confident that they can project big picture changes? I think that what makes climate scientists happy to talk about this is because they're happy how they talk about uncertainty. Um, so I would be very uncomfortable if somebody said, this is exactly how the temperature is going to change in 100 years, because I don't believe anybody knows that. However, what we do is we run multiple different models, and as we've talked about already, scenarios and, and ensembles to try and think of all the different possible things going to happen in the future. And then from that, we say, well, the most likely situation is this. But if you look at the deeper reports behind all that, there's always a big plus and minus to this. So there still is quite a lot of uncertainty in it. Um, so although we are confident in, in what we know, uh, we're also aware there's a lot that we don't know. Uh, and I'd never take one number when I'm talking about climate change. The focus about what is ahead of us is, uh, is obvious. You know, it's, it's about how we're going to manage uh, climate breakdown. And scientists look deep into our past to understand what may lie ahead. And Paul, you spend an awful lot of your time focusing on the movement of glaciers, these big, thick bodies of ice. Uh, and, you know, you're looking millions of years into the past in order to have a sense of, of what's ahead of us. Can you just tell us what, what does looking at them do to help us predict uh, climate uh, in the future? Yeah, in a very simple way of looking at a, a glacier, it's like the similar to the barometer that you'd have in your hallway that's telling you whether the pressure is going up or the temperature is going up or down. Uh, and a glacier is a climatically controlled environmental system. So it's uh, if it's the temperature's cold and there's a lot of moisture in the air and that it'll snow, it'll fall on the surface of the glacier and it'll it'll grow. And if it's warm and dry, it'll shrink. So uh, you can look at the behaviour of glaciers and they can tell you directly something about the climate, whether, whether it's heating or whether it's cooling. And we know from the last two and a half million years, we had a large the continental scale glaciers, the size of Antarctica, for example, covering Britain and Ireland. 
um, like North America was covered in a huge ice sheet down as far as New York that was about nearly five over five kilometers thick. And these are huge, big, big systems, and they repeatedly melt and melt and retreat and and then grow again through time. So yeah, they're like they're they're like a barometer. And and in your time. Uh, working and looking at them, have they disappeared at, at, at an alarming rate for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean the, the satellite systems are really brilliant. They, you can look at a long-term record going back to the 1970s and nearly everywhere where you go, the map glaciers through time, you'll see a recessional pattern in most cases. Um, and that, whether it's in the Alps, the Himalayas, go to the coldest places in the planet up in the Arctic Circle, for example, you'll find most sort of terrestrial based ice melting as well too. We talk a lot about sea ice in the Arctic, that's why I'm drawing a differentiation there. But no glaciers are land-based systems and um, I get undergraduate students to, as for, for dissertation projects all the time. They map them in different spots of the world and they're all, you get this sort of pattern of recession happening. So, so, so ones out in the Alps that you've visited, for example? Yeah, yeah. So I, like I'm a climber, so I used to go to the Alps uh, in the early 1990s and a really classic uh, Tourist one that people go to is a, a, a glacier called the Murder Glass. You can go to Chamonix Village and get the train up, and then there's a set of ladders you can tr- you can climb down and you can walk along the surface of the glacier. And that glacier has, has thinned down quite dramatically, uh, so that the ladders don't reach the surface anymore. The ones that we used to climb down, and it's it's, it's thinned down at its side, you know. So even in my lifetime, and a few a few like well twenty years, there's been a huge recession in, in the European Alps. And all of this this data is constantly being fed in then to the climate models in order to tell scientists obviously you know the, the glaciers themselves are screaming the story yeah, yeah. Uh, but also to tell them about what is going to come in the future yeah well I mean, I mean, uh, I mean obviously like, the, the, the sort of we would look at from the geological point of view we would say like if you look like, the, 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 the sort of past is the key to the future if you can understand what's happened in the past it gives you good indication so a lot of the work that we do we'd look at the glacial deposits that were left behind by the last ice sheet and we can we can sort of date the timing of those uh, advances and retreats through time to give you an indication of how rapidly things are changing. Um, I mean, that that feeds into climate modelling because you can sort of test and validate models if you if you look look at paleoclimate, the past climate. Um, I think for future modelling, I think what's the really important thing is, as we've alluded to it already, is like ocean temperatures, you know, so we need to know about the ocean. If the Greenland ice sheet continues to, to melt as it does now, it's melting seven times quicker now than it was in the in the 90s. All that fresh water is going into the Atlantic Ocean and causing a cooling effect. So that has to be understood to feed into the models because that, that's a boundary condition that's going to change what's going to happen. Also, if you melt lots of ice in the in the Arctic, it changes the colour of the Arctic, so it's not so bright white, and you reduce the reflection, so then you end up with a blue ocean rather than a white ocean because it's not frozen anymore, and that blue surface can 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 generate more heat from the sun because it's it's absorbing the sun's rays rather than reflecting it out. So what you've got in the Arctic is this thing called Arctic amplification, where the Arctic Circle or that Arctic region is uh, warming faster, twice as fast as anywhere else. Because it's a double whammy, effectively. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, you do, so those those observations are really critical for forward modelling because these boundary layers or boundary conditions are going to be changing. So it's important to keep the monitoring going. And so I guess satellite systems plus in situ field monitoring are really important for I guess we always need to try and feed in, feed in the best sort of starting conditions for the for the models. And, and Connor Murphy, you also have reached back into history as a way to understand climate and a way to to feed into these models. Uh, you say that Ireland has the richest historical direct observations of weather, uh, dating back to 1711, uh, compared to anywhere in the world. Can you just describe the record? 
Yeah, um, certainly not on the timescales of what Paul was talking about, <laughs> but um, we've had the, the pleasure of getting back to, to explore Ireland's uh, observations, particularly of rainfall uh, getting back over the last number of centuries. And actually, uh, on the island here, we are very lucky in terms of we have a really rich history of weather observing. Uh, the, the very earliest direct observations of rainfall we can find were from a guy called Thomas Neve in Northern Ireland, who in 1711 uh, was describing a, a really rudimentary rain gauge, uh, taking measurements, um, compiling observations of data. And as the 1700s progressed, more, more of his like uh, took up the task and into the 1800s we get a, a, a nice dense network of, of rainfall records that we're really able to capitalise on now to understand how Ireland's climate has changed, its rainfall in particular has changed over the last 300 years and more. And tell me about Dr John Rutty. Yeah, John Rutty was a really interesting character. He was a physician in Dublin um, and he kept a weather diary in Dublin from uh, throughout much of the 1700s. Um, in that he was more interested at the time in, in trying to link how weather conditions were associated with, with health, well-being, sickness, disease in Dublin. Um, but his records have gone on to be a really important source of information. So each day he was recording what was happening in Dublin, the weather at the time, wind direction, uh, sea level pressure. Um, and from that we're able to, to derive uh, records of, of rainfall for the Dublin region getting back to 17. 1720s. And I gather he, he, what he was interested in was how mortality varied with the weather. With the weather, exactly. And, and often, and, you know, the, that example is replicated many times. He, he wouldn't have been aware of, of the, the modern challenges of climate change, but the, the, the detail he kept, his commitment to taking observations, his meticulous nature, is of huge benefit to us now uh, and allows us to piece together the longs, one of the longest continuous rainfall records anywhere in the world. And did he find that people were dying more when it was rainy? Uh, no, there was no relationships that we, we, relate, we, we looked at uh, or indeed that, that Rutty looked at. But there are some examples in the past where there were serious drought events um, in the 1780s, for example, that, that have been associated with uh, crop failures and famine conditions in Ireland. The most famous one uh, in terms of how extreme hardship in society can can be associated with weather is perhaps the year 1740. Exceptionally cold conditions known as bleen on air are the year of the slaughter where there's exceptionally cold conditions, long droughts from spring into summer that cause widespread crop failures. And again, in terms of the, the vulnerability of society, their ability to be able to cope with those conditions and to to put in place the, the safety nets was very different than today and resulted in large fatalities. And, and I wonder for someone like you, whose job it is, is to look back. I mean, how reliable is this kind of data that you come across? Yeah, of course, the, the, the further back in time you go, you, the more uncertain the observations become. Um, it's not really until the 1860s uh, and up to present that we have uh, more regular um, requirements for uh, observers to, to follow uh, rules and regulations about gauge design and where it's placed and how it's exposed. But we do, uh, we are able to get a good handle by, by looking at multiple lines of evidence from things like sea level pressure, from rainfall, from temperature records, piecing them together with documentary sources. Even our newspaper records in Ireland give us huge insight into 
how extreme events affected society, when those extreme events occurred. And we can match up those documentary sources with those early observations to build confidence in them. And, and Obviously, you, you, they're, they're not as good as the present ones, but they, they give us an indication of how our, our weather and climate has varied over centuries. And that you can tell a reliable story. You looked at a 300-year history of Irish rainfall and it shows that recent winters were the wettest on record. But you also said that rainfall is much more difficult to predict than temperature. And I wonder why that is. It is. Um, once we get down to, to look at precipitation, um, local topography becomes important. There are different dynamics in the atmosphere that become important. And indeed, when you step back and look at the, the generation of climate models, they're, they're fundamentally pointed or directed at trying to get a handle on how Earth's global mean temperature responds to, to greenhouse gas emissions. And getting down to the very local level, as we were talking about earlier, is the big challenge. Um, so trying to get a handle on rainfall, which is inherently variable, is the challenge. Um, and the way that we have to think about that is, as Conor Sweeney was talking earlier on, I, I would agree in that we would never give a, a prediction for climate change, and uh, particularly not for rainfall. But it's important to look at the range and to, to understand what might be plausible or possible in certain locations. That's, that's where I think that the key challenge around moving to climate adaptation is. It's around how we translate the uncertainty at local levels into actual decision-making around building more resilient systems to deal with climate change. And Conor Sweeney, finally, I mean, when we look at climate modelling in the future, where are the most exciting advancements? I mean, one presumes that in order to get behaviour change in, in people, you're going to need to start at some stage telling them reliable information about their local area. So thinking about that Donegal farmer, to be able to really talk clearly to him about uh, what is happening in his area and what will happen for his children and his grandchildren and I wonder is that where the advancements will come from? Absolutely I think it's a very exciting time um, for climate uh, scientists and people who are working in the area of climate because it seems to me there's, a, there's been a big buy-in recently um, there's been something of a green wave and I think more people's children and grandchildren are really buying in to the idea that this is something we have to take seriously and this is something we have to deal with now. Um, in a strange way, I think the present COVID pandemic has even fed into this somewhat. And people have noticed clearer skies and less pollution and more nature. And that's feeding back into questions about greenhouse gas emissions and energy usage that may change our patterns in the future. Uh, so I think the public coming towards the scientists and the scientists going towards the public, I think it's a great opportunity. Uh, and if we come together, we can translate our needs to each other uh, and hopefully lead to a better uh, situation in the future. And Paul, finally, I mean, you work in an area which must be full of heartbreak. I mean, <laughs> you are physically seeing the demise of these uh, huge, big glaciers. Yeah. Uh, what role do you think the likes of the arts and, 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 and others can play in, in kind of communicating that to people? I mean, not everyone like you can go out and actually see these things. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a really important question, actually, because one, one of the things that, that we have to even sort of communicate is what we do and it's it's not easy for people to grasp. So um, we have a PhD student who's starting in September and uh, she is an artist and we're engaging uh, an artist to try and understand about what is the importance of glaciers, glaciers now, glaciers in the past and and the whole, whole climate change story to try and communicate that to people who are not science or not science background and to try and make it, make it more accessible through art, through sound, through whatever whatever sort of artistic medium can come through because we need to reach people. This is such a critical uh, 
question. Listen, we've run out of time. It's a fascinating area. Uh, thank you all so much. Paul Dunlop, Ulster University, Connor Sweeney in UCD and Connor Murphy in Maynooth University. Thank you.